0: Deuteronomy 33, saddle up. (laughs) So as we come to the end here of this remarkable word of Moses, word of God through Moses, the end of of not only Deuteronomy, but the end of Moses' life, which we'll talk about on Sunday. And, And not just the end of Deuteronomy and the end of Moses' life, but also the very end of Torah itself. This is a big deal. For the Jewish people, Torah was the deal. The the prophets came along and and gave hope for the future and the poetry was part of worship. But man, Torah, you needed to know Torah. And so we're in Torah, but we're at the very end of Torah. And this, this happens to me every time because I'm somewhat of a sap. When I get to the end of any book that we're studying, I always get a little pensive. Cheryl knows she sees the end coming because I'm walking around the house going, just thinking about stuff. And did you realize how long Moses lived and what he was doing right here at the end? And she's like, I know, we're at the end of Deuteronomy. (laughs) But coming to the end of Torah, I have been pensive over the last week. I've been just thinking about where we've been since we started Genesis, which was 2019. What has taken place in these five books, what we've been taught, lessons learned here in the world what we have gone through as, as, a, as humanity, as a country, as people here in Washington State, as a church fellowship. Man. And then I think about what, what did God intend with all this? His intentions for us going through Torah law of, of all things during this time in the season of the world. And I've thought about all that. And, and you know, I, I come to something very simple here. And I want to say this to you guys. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We are not peddlers here. We're not, well, the word peddler is capella uo, and it literally translates huckster. We're not hucksters of some religious faith. We're not trying to sell something. You know, the the truth is the truth, as as Jake so aptly put it. And I have never aspired to be a salesman. Now, I've been told that I can come off sometimes like a used car salesman. I don't know why. (laughs) Buy it, buy it, you want it. But we're not selling anything. We're just speaking truth here not trying to persuade someone to buy into my personal brand or product. Not trying to make bridgeites out of people. We wanna be followers of Jesus. And, and so the reason we go through the word like we have been, verse by verse, thinking it through, processing it through, walking it through, is not to bamboozle, but to bless. It's to bless. And, and there are two sides of this, first, and foremost is to bless someone who has no faith in Jesus whatsoever. That I am convinced, as God said, my word does not come back to me empty. Therefore, the best way to bring Jesus to a person is to bring the word, the gospel of truth, the simple gospel, but then to begin to teach the word. And if someone is on the fence or uncertain or non-believing, man, just come to Bible study for a while and watch God work on your hearts. So it's a blessing, the free offer of God's grace in Jesus is first and foremost why we open our Bibles, why we're in the word, why we share the word. It's not a scam, it's salvation. Literally the eternal blessing. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have that blessing. I mean, pause and think about that just for a moment. You have the greatest eternal blessing you could possibly have. I mean, you've been handed salvation by Jesus. That is awesome. That's awesome. That alone is worth the whole thing. But Christians, once we've been given this great blessing of salvation, man, there's more. There's more blessing. As the Bible teaches, Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. David says that's the blessing. David, a believer in God, a follower, a man after God's own heart. But he said, but being in the word is blessing. Psalm 119, 105, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Why, after I'm saved, would I spend all this time in the Bible? It's a lamp. You may remember even a year ago, January, we we went through a prophecy update series and we talked about it being like that lantern that is held out before us, that gives us a sense of where to go, of next steps, even in this dark world. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23 says, "...the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light." And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So yes, I'm saved, blessed with eternity, but I continue to be blessed as I hold out the lamp of his word, as I follow the light of this teaching. Proverbs 16, verse 20 says, he who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So salvation for the seeker and blessing ongoing for the believer And I can't help but think about the character George in Seinfeld. You know that came out in 93? We are two years away from Seinfeld being a 30-year-old show. That just freaks me out. But I remember, I watched it, you know, first run back through the 90s. And in the pilot episode, the character of George Costanza, complete moron, he says, I know just when everything's going right, God's going to take it all away from me. And Jerry Seinfeld says, I thought you didn't believe in God. And George replies, I believe in him for the bad stuff. How many people think that way? In this world, if there's bad stuff happening, it's an act of God. God's doing this to me. Good things are happening. I've produced it myself. Or perhaps the universe is smiling down on me. But I believe him for the bad stuff. How many people sadly misjudge God that way? Deuteronomy 33, verse one begins. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And that is the key word of the entire chapter tonight. Blessing. Moses is going to bless the sons of Israel. God wants to bless people. Listen to that again. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel. This is the first time in the Bible we see the phrase man of God. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. And it is tied in with blessing. That is, the man of God, the woman of God, blesses. It's what you do. It's what we do as his people. First time, we hear man of God, right there. The second time we hear it again, it's used of Moses. In Joshua chapter 14, verse 6, Moses, the man of God. And then the next time we hear it is interesting. It's in Judges chapter 13, verse 6, and it describes the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a Christophany. Now, we don't have time to go into the story of the angel of the Lord showing up to the home of the wife of Manoah and meets her and meets him and tells them they're going to have a son. And of course, they have Samson. But the angel of the Lord there, it's so fascinating to follow the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew, through the Hebrew scriptures. And I am convinced, and this is now after the second time going through the Hebrew scriptures, I am convinced the Malach Yahweh is Jesus. A pre-incarnate appearance of God in flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God in flesh. And we can get all into that discussion and perhaps we can another time, but I believe it's a Christophany. The third time, the phrase man of God is used, it's used of the son of man, Jesus Christ, prior to his incarnation. After that, the phrase man of God is used of the prophets. It's used of David the king. And four more times, so for a total of six times, it is used to describe Moses in the Hebrew scriptures. The man of God. Interestingly, in the New Testament it's only used twice. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul uses the phrase of Timothy. He says, "Flee from these things." He's talking about the love of money. "Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness." Descriptions of a man of God. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, which implies anybody who would desire to be a man of God, we could extend that a woman of God, you need to be in the word of God, so that the man of God may be equipped, uh, adequate, equipped for every good work. So anyone equipped by the word of God can be a man or a woman of God. We start off with Moses, the man of God, getting ready to bless, and Moses is no huckster. He is no self-indulgent swindler. Moses, here at the end of a remarkable career, of a life at least the last 80 years or so, especially the last 40, a life lived for other people, not for himself. He expels now much of his final breath to bless Israel. See, that's also a picture of a man of God. As he's giving out his last breath, he's blessing people. Blessing people on the way out the door. That's that's what I want to be doing. I've I've told you all before, I want to preach on a Wednesday and die on a Thursday or or be raptured on a Thursday, preferably. (laughs) And I'm preferring that I'm not going to die tomorrow. But I want the last thing I do to be speaking the words of God from his word. The man of God blesses on the way out the door. That's what Jesus did. Jesus on the cross, prior to his death, he said, Father, Luke 23, 34, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. There's the blessing of eternity right there. And then Jesus says to the thief hung there next to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus hung up, nailed in excruciating pain and he blesses the thief saying you'll be with me i got you or john 19:26 still in that excruciating pain by the way you know the word excruciating excruciating means of the cross it's that kind of pain and in that pain jesus says to his mother as he hangs up there woman behold your son looking over it we believe john the apostle and then he says to the disciple behold your mother what's he doing He's caring for them. He's blessing them. He's making sure Mary has a son to look after her and John has a mother to care for. It's what a man of God does on the way out the door. He blesses. That's the Father's heart. It was in the heart of Christ Jesus. Everything God does is for ultimate blessing to the praise of his glory. Everything he does. And it may not always feel like blessing right up front. But every act of God, every move of God, every wave of his hand in your life is to bless you. And we will know this when it's all said and done. Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Some of those we haven't even experienced yet, but they're there for the taking. The blessings are there for you and for me now and right on into eternity. So the man or the woman of God looks for ways that they can bless. And like Jacob before him in Genesis 49, Jacob blessed his 12 sons. Now Moses is going to bless the sons of Israel. Watch this, verse two. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones at his right hand, There was flashing lightning for them. Let me unpack that for you a bit. Sinai is Horeb. So he came from Sinai or came to them at Sinai, that's at the very beginning of the journey. Seir, Seir, which is mentioned here in uh, about halfway through verse two, Seir is at the end of their journey in Edom. So Sinai at the beginning. Seir at the end, and then Paran, Mount Paran was at Kadesh or above Kadesh on the border of the promised land. So, what Moses is saying as he begins the blessing is the Lord has been with you throughout. From beginning to middle to end, he has been with you. From Sinai to Seir to Paran, all of these mounts, he has seen you through this terrible wilderness. And he says, interestingly, the midst of 10 thousand holy ones or you could translate that a great quantity of holiness from the myriad of of holy ones now some would translate that from the midst of ten thousand holy ones he came that must be angels two problems with that angels are not called holy ones in the hebrew scriptures they're holy there are they are called at times holy angels but holy ones, the phrase kadosh, it always speaks of the saints of God. In this case, the sons of Israel. In the New Testament, the equivalent is Hagias, and it speaks of the church, the saints, the holy ones. So is he coming out of holy angels, the myriad of holy angels? Well, hold that thought. It says, at his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. And you might jot this down. Flashing lightning is literally commandments of fire which is another description of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, the fire on the mount, a fiery law. You could say, as my friend Connie is is wont to say, this word is fire. And it's a fiery law that that he has given the people. And I really like that. I like this flashing lightning. That's nice, but I wish they had just gone with the translation fiery law because this word is fire. This word is like a burning fire. Jeremiah knew as much. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 said, if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, understood what it was like to have the burning fire of the word of God in his heart. Because that burning fire through Jeremiah was... Pretty negative. Israel, Judah was on their last leg before the deportation to Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is the only prophet warning the people while all the other prophets are going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're just fine. As long as the temple's standing, Jeremiah is saying, no, 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 it's not gonna stand. No, the Lord is displeased. No, the Lord won't even let me pray for you anymore. The Lord is going to send you into captivity and it's a burning fire in his bones. And he says, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm done. And he gets this little heartburn and it starts to grow in him. And Jeremiah grows weary, literally, of holding back the word he has to speak it. And I think, would that it be that way for us? You ever hear that old phrase, we use this a lot in the 90s? The Lord put a burden on my heart for you. I kind of like that. I think there are times when we slip back and when we are not sharing the truth with people, we need it to burden us. We need it to be a burning fire and we grow weary of holding it back. We can't hold it back. We've got to let the word out so people can hear the truth here at the end of the age. So the Lord came from Sinai and had that fiery law from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. But watch this, verse three. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand. Same phrase, kadosh. All your holy ones are in your hand and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words and that is talking about Israel, which is primarily why in context, I think he came from or to the myriads of holy ones is also talking about Israel, that the holy ones are how God views the people of Israel. Now, the reason I, I focus on that and pause with this is typically in the Bible, angels are just called angels. Saints are called holy ones. The people of God are his holy ones. And you need to know that because Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5 says something remarkable. It says, The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And the holy ones who come with him, my friends, are not the angels. They are the church returning with him. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, his holy ones. Jude 14 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, his saints. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints, in his holy ones, same word, on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And then we get this marvelous picture in Revelation 19, verse 11, as Jesus returns in mighty glory on his white steed. It says, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What army goes to war in fine linen, white and clean? On white horses, nonetheless. The saints do, the holy ones, returning with Jesus at that time. So I, I just wanted to give you that reminder that there's even blessing in Jesus' return. When he rides, the saints are going to ride with him. As I said earlier, saddle up. Verse 4, Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Yaakov. And he was king in Jeshurun. Remember Jeshurun? Yeshurun is the phrase God has for his people, meaning upright one, the upright one, my holy ones, he calls them. This is what God wants his people to be. It's only possible if God is in and among and with his people, but his desire for them, his desire for us is that we be upright ones. He was king, God was king in upright ones, in in Yeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered in the tribes of Israel together. So at the end of verse five there, he's referring to Yahweh, who is the subject of verses two through five. And the reason he begins this way before he even speaks blessing for Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, he begins with this opening because all blessing is sourced from God. All blessing comes from the source of the Lord. Well, now he gets into it. Verse six, may Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. And that's about all Reuben gets, which is a little sad. I mean, it's nice. May Reuben, you know, have progeny continue on still exist at the end of the age good for reuben i remind you this is the firstborn of jacob he should be elevated among all the others he should be the high and mighty reuben he gets first mention here but remember what happened jacob stripped reuben of his position that the tribe of reuben would no longer be the tribe of the firstborn reuben lost his position As old Jacob said, Genesis 49, verse four, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch, Jacob says, because Reuben slept with his father's wife. Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And effectively, Jacob took Reuben out of first position and put Judah who was fourth position first so that Judah is the blessed firstborn, as it were, of Israel. Interesting. Reuben, hope he lives a long time. Verse seven, and regarding Judah, So he said, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. And this blessing of Judah is awesome. The way it's spoken and what Moses says here Judah, you may recall, is the vanguard of Israel. So not only is Judah placed in first position, but Judah was the first to go out to war. He was the vanguard of the Israelite army. Numbers chapter two, verse nine, the total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies, they shall set out first. So they have the distinct honor of being first to set out in the march through the wilderness, first to go to war, first to lead out when there are battles to be fought. So on the surface, as you read this blessing, it sounds like a blessing prayer that Judah going out first would return to their people safely would come back securely. But read it again because it is packed with prophetic hints of Judah's greatest son. Note this. He says in the middle of the verse, with his hands he contended for them. Okay, how do you, how do you contend for your people with your hands? Well, you can fight a battle. Or as Paul said, 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. You can contend for your people in prayer. And that is one of our greatest sources, one of our greatest weapons truly in spiritual warfare is we contend with our hands. And we're not slugging it out with people. We are contending with holy hands, lifted up to the Lord, in prayer to the Lord, crying out to the Lord. That's how we contend with our hands. And with His hands... Jesus contended for his people. Listen to this. Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. What was Jesus praying for all that time? Now, if it was me, I'd be praying, God, get me out of here. Why did we ever make this plan in the first place? How did I end up here? I miss heaven. I want to be home. Just get me out. Do we really think that Jesus got up early in the morning, slipped away into the wilderness, or sometimes prayed all night long because he was praying for himself? See, the Bible says, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. My friends, when it says with his hands he contended for them, I believe that that points to the contending of Jesus in prayer for the people of Israel when he was on earth, slipping off to pray. Oh Father, Father, may they hear your word today. Oh, Father, may the appointments be divine today. Oh, Lord, as I move among your people, break down their hard hearts that they may hear you. I think that's what Jesus must have been praying the whole time. And we know that Jesus prayed for help against his adversaries. May you be a help against his adversaries. As Jesus is praying through all his ministry life, and then, of course, culminating in the Garden of Gethsemane, As Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, even then, is praying for help against the adversaries. But I like the first line of this blessing Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. The voice of Judah, voice of Jesus. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. As Jesus prayed, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. Jesus, that son of Judah. Luke 13, 34, as Jesus prayed, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate And behold, I say to you, you will not see me. I love this. Listen, you will not see me ever again. Now he says, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen, O Lord, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. Zechariah 14 verse 4 tells us his feet in that day will stand on the Mount of Olives. Romans 11:26: 26 so all Israel will be saved just as it is written the deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Oh bring him to his people. Hear the voice of Jesus bring him to his people. He contends in prayer for his people. He cries out for a help against his adversaries. It just sounds like Jesus to me. So Reuben is blessed. the Judah is blessed. And we move on to Levi. Hang on a second. If you've got a watchful eye, you realize something here. Shimon is not in the list. Simeon. It should be Reuben, Levi and Simeon, and then Judah. If you go back to Genesis 49, that's the order And Shimon, Simeon, ought to be mentioned. He's not even mentioned at all. As Moses blesses the people, and you know, we've we've said this before, well, he is 120. So, you know, one just kind of slips his, oh yeah, Shimon, bless him too. But he never mentions Shimon, and I do not believe it's an age factor because we know that Moses died with his mind absolutely clear. So what's going on here? Why is Shimon left out? Now, what I should do is just leave this for you to do yourselves, figure it out, do your homework, and come tell me next week. He's the only one left out. Why? Well, I'll give you my opinion. Old Jacob set the pattern in his blessing. Genesis chapter 49, verse 7, he says, Cursed be Shimon's anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Them who? Levi and Simeon. Because you may recall that they went in and slaughtered an entire town. Wiped it out. Those two guys, their anger fierce. And so Jacob levies kind of a curse on both sons. Well, something changes for Levi, But nothing has changed for Simeon and so that curse remains and so he is going to be somehow dispersed in Jacob. Listen, anger will scatter a family. Husbands, fathers, anger will scatter your family. Get it under control. I don't know how to get it under control. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. When you're angry, don't give the devil a foothold. If you've got an anger issue, you start taking it to the Lord now and asking Him to redeem you from it now because anger will destroy a family. At least it will scatter it. Simeon, and here's what happened, Simeon ultimately was scattered and assimilated into Judah. Which is why I believe they're not even mentioned in the blessing of Moses here because they're already kind of mixed into Judah. You'll see if you look at the back of your Bibles, if you look at a map of all of the land holdings of all the tribes of Israel, look where Simeon is. Right smack in the middle of Judah. Surrounded by Judah as if Judah has completely consumed Simeon. Joshua chapter 19 verse 1 says, their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. And you can see that graphically. Joshua 19, verse 9, the inheritance of the sons of Shimon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah. So the share of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah, was too big for them. So the sons of Shimon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance, completely surrounded. So you might read that and go, well, bummer. So Simeon just doesn't get to be blessed? Hey, Hey, their blessing is that they're in the midst of Judah. They're right there in the middle of Judah. Part of that blessing is they're going to last as a kingdom far longer than the northern kingdom will. And the kingdom of Judah will survive longer and then will come back from Babylonian captivity. Their, think about it this way. Their blessing is in the midst of Judah, kind of like ours is. See, our blessing is that we have been grafted in to the blessings of Israel by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We've been included. Do you feel any less blessed because you're not Jewish? With one exception that I know of tonight? Do you feel any less blessed? I got two exceptions actually tonight. Of Jewish brothers, the rest of us are a bunch of Gentiles. Do you feel less blessed because you didn't get to grow up in the lineage? No, I don't. I'm grafted in. I was so thrilled being a kid growing up in Southern California, which is such a melting pot. Nobody has any background or lineage. You know, it's all kind of there. I think I've got some Scottish in me somewhere. But I was thrilled to realize, no, my line goes back to Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. Not by blood, but by faith. I am now grafted into that. How marvelous. So, so because Judah was huge and Shimon was in the midst of Judah, Shimon gets blessed. They're just not named here in these blessings. Verse 8, of Levi. So remember, Shimon and Levi were the two angry brothers who slaughtered the town. Of Levi, he said, verse 8, let your tumim and your Urim, your Urim and thumim, not your Umatherman, your Urim and thumim, let it belong to your godly man, singular, whom you proved at Massa, whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, talking about Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, the lineage of Aaron, which is within Levi, but let your Thummim and your Urim be with the godly man. That's gonna be the high priest. Verse nine, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. Because Levi stood up when nobody else would. And here's where Levi and Shimon, both cursed by Jacob, but now here's where they part paths, because Levi stood up and Moses says, who is on the side of the Lord at the golden calf incident? And Levi lined up with Moses and threw in their lot with the father and with the lawgiver, They said, we will stand with you. And as Moses says, who said of his father and mother, I didn't consider him, nor did he acknowledge his brothers. What does that mean? It means they went right through the camp and carried out the will of God at that time, which was to slay all those who were aligned with the golden calf. Rough word, tough calling. But they said, we choose God even over our own brothers in Israel, and because they did that, they are elevated to the priesthood. And we could get all into this, but the priesthood was originally designed by God to be for all Israel. They were to be a priestly nation, but the nation rebelled, fell apart before they even got the law. They were breaking the law. But Levi stood up, and God said, "That's my priesthood, and they will serve me as priests." In fact, Moses says, verse ten. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob, your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they will not rise again. That's the blessing of Levi. What a remarkable gift that they got to be the teachers of Israel that they got to offer incense. What does that mean? Prayer. Coming before the Lord in the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple to come into the holy place and light the incense, which was representative of prayer, and they would stand there before the Lord praying. Even as the example we see in the New Testament of of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, goes in to offer the incense and pray and comes face to face with the angel. You know that story, or if you don't, go read it. But praying before the Lord, they're to pray for their people. They're to teach their people. They're to offer the sacrifices. And then, of course, as he starts out, there is the thumim and the urim, or the urim and thumim, which are those implements that we still don't fully understand what they were. The Bible tells us they were kept in the breastpiece of the godly man. That is the high priest. They were kept in the breastpiece. And so some think, Perhaps it was the stones in the breastpiece that supernaturally they would light up to give answer and this is the urim and the thummim were to be consulted before the lord when they had exhausted all other possibilities when they had tried to go to the law they had read through torah they tried to figure it out. If they just didn't have the answer, didn't know what to do, they could consult the Urim and Thummim, which was in essence consulting the Lord at the tabernacle. So they would go and the breastpiece, either the Urim and Thummim were something put into the breastpiece, held in the breastpiece, or they were the stones on the breastpiece and we really don't know which one it is. What we do know is that Urim means lights. You Bible students remember this? And thumim means, anyone know? Perfections. The lights and perfections. Lights and perfections, and which is why some think maybe the stones actually would light to give answer to the question that was being raised. What I can tell you is what the Urim and Thummim are not. We know their lights and perfections. What exactly that meant, how it worked, I don't know. But I can tell you that they are not, that they were not mystical x-ray vision glasses. Which sounds a little nutty to even say, right? Do you realize that Joseph Smith came along and said the Urim and Thummim that he had them? He got them. They're mystical glasses that allowed him to read the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics on the golden plates given to him by the angel Moroni. The Urim and the Thummim were given to Joseph Smith so he could read these plates. My friends, the Bible says in Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And the Book of Mormon is a gospel contrary to what was already preached. Joseph Smith brought in Deception and untruths and mistruths and twistings of the scriptures already given. So the Urim and the Thummim, I'm sorry, Joe. Even if he had something like that, even if an angel came to him and gave him something like that, that angel would be functioning in the service of Satan because it's not possible he is to be accursed if he brings along something like that. So we don't know, again, how the Urim and Thummim worked. But listen to this, if you want to know the will of God, maybe you've exhausted all friends and family. You've asked everyone you know and no one's giving you an answer that makes sense and and you don't know where to turn or what to do. How do we discern the will of God? The lights and the perfections. They give us another picture, again, of Jesus. Who is the light of the world and he is the perfect one. The rock, perfect are all his ways. Jesus is the light and the perfection. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus who's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. You want to know God's will? Go to the high priest. Go to Jesus. You want to understand God's will? Stick close to the breastplate. That is the heart of God in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't speak so much about mystical guidance as it speaks about a personal guide. But Jesus didn't say, I'll tell you the way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this is how Jesus functions and I love this about him. He's not about saying, here's a list of directions to get there. He says instead, instead, walk with me. Walk with me. Let's go together. I'll let you know what you need to know when you need to know it. But God lets us know in Jesus by relationship. By moving with him. I've told you recently, my my sons, uh, more than than one of them, have have said to me over the years at different times, and one of them very recently, why this big book? Why why didn't God just say, here's how you get there? Because God is interested in a relationship with you. And relationship takes time. You want to read through this book? Read through the book. You can do it in a year, 12 minutes a day. We talked about that last week and you will have spent 12 minutes a day with God." What a great thing. This is what he's drawing us into. He says, I am the way, walk with me, come with me. Don't look to some mystical thing. Just come ask me and be with me. How does that work out practically? It really does work. It takes just a little bit of faith. You don't know what to do? Stop and pray. Jesus, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's so simple. But it works. He wants to lead you through relationship. And so that's the blessing of Levi. Moses goes on, verse 12, to the blessing now of Benjamin. Son of my right hand, he said, may the beloved of the Lord dwell securely by him. That's exactly what I was just saying. Not dwell securely by reading all the words as much as, or by the guidebook. No, dwell securely by him who shields him all the day and he dwells between his shoulders. What is between the shoulders of Jesus? It's his heart. The man, the woman who dwells in his heart. Now, this is specific because Benjamin's land actually was settled in the southern part of Israel across two hills that look like shoulders. So his, his land holdings, his allotment, is there in between the two shoulders in the land itself. But what stands in between those two shoulders is a city called Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is at the heart of Benjamin and Judah. Judah's right there on the border, but the heart of Benjamin between the two shoulders, and this, by the way, is important because it's the first time, and you might make a little note in your margins, that he dwells between his shoulders, that the land allotment of Benjamin shows us where God dwells. That is his holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So this is the first time in the Bible where we have an allusion to Jerusalem being God's city of choice, that he's already kind of pointing there. It's not Shiloh. It's in between the two shoulders. That's that's where he dwells. That's where God wants to dwell, the city of his choosing. Second Chronicles chapter six, verse six, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Psalm 87, 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And Zion is, of course, Jerusalem. For the Lord has chosen Zion, Psalm one thirty-two, thirteen: He has desired it for his habitation. Do you think that God is aware that the international community wants to divide his city? Of course he is. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. He says, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. A thought about President Trump, if I may. I watched him in office. I saw the passion that he presented for Israel. Moving the U.S. Embassy, first president to do it, though we've been promising since the 90s, moving the U.S. Embassy out of Tel Aviv and into Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, where it belongs. Trump did that. Wow, way to go, Trump. Recognizing the Golan Heights as belonging, as territory belonging to Israel. No other president did that. All right, President Trump, in the last couple of weeks, perhaps you've read what he's been saying about Benjamin Netanyahu and about Israel and the negativity. Now, I bring this up because what's really interesting to me is it seems that over the course of the history of the presidents of the United States, when a president, especially going back specifically to 1948, when a president has stood for Israel, that president has succeeded. Either by remaining in office or being successful in office, there is a parallel there that is pretty unmistakable. And when a president turns his back on Israel, sets himself against Israel, he fails. I was surprised that Trump didn't get a second term. Not because of all the January 6th stuff and all the politics. Just set that aside for a minute. I'm not talking about that. I was surprised that there wasn't a second term because I've never seen a U.S. president in modern history stand up for Israel the way Trump did. I'm beginning to wonder if God didn't know what was really going on in his heart. And perhaps for all the outward motions that inwardly God knew a time was coming when he would not stand with Israel anymore. Just throwing that out there for you to chew on and, you know, whatever. But it's interesting to me, God cares about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always a cup that causes reeling, a heavy stone for anyone who tries to mess with it. You mess with Jerusalem, God's gonna mess with you. And that's pretty much been the standard down throughout time. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured. And even for that warning, all the nations of the earth will be gathered Against it. Well, next we come out of Benjamin and we come to Joseph. Joseph, unquestionably Jacob's favorite son, his most beloved son, and this tribe of two, because Joseph becomes Ephraim and Manasseh, gets the longest blessing of Moses, verse 13. Of Joseph, he said, blessed of the Lord be his land with the choice things of heaven with the dew and from the deep lying beneath. So that's the water table beneath the ground. And with the choice yield of the sun and with the choice produce of the months and with the best things of the ancient mountains and with the choice things of the everlasting hills and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness. And you may recall that Jacob called Joseph a fruitful bough, a fruitful people. This will be Ephraim and Manasseh and their land. And then he says, in the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. And his horns are the horns of the wild ox. And with them, he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those who are the 10,000s of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. These two sons of Leah are usually paired together. Ephraim and Manasseh. Or yeah, Ephraim and Manasseh. Oh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. No. Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim and Manasseh settled in the breadbasket of Israel. I'll talk about the two sons of Leah in just a second. Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, the son of Rachel. These two boys, their tribes, when they come into the land, are going to settle in the fertile land. And again, you can look on a Bible map to see where their settling was, but they settled from the Jezreel Valley Valley, up to the north of Israel all the way through the Valley of Megiddo, which is a fruitful, rich valley, and all along the Mediterranean coast. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. Rich, beautiful, abundant, fruitful land. That was given to them. But you know what's really cool in the midst of this? For all the choice land and the choice yield and the fruitfulness. Notice the middle of verse 16. It says, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Contrast that. Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, get all this massive land, the largest section, truly with the exception of Judah, the largest section of Israel belongs to Ephraim and Manasseh. As they would fill out that land all the way down the coast of Israel, beautiful, rich land. But the blessing of the fruitfulness comes by the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. What bush? Any guesses? Who dwelt in the bush? Throw something out there. Give me Give me something. The burning bush, it's the only bush I know of in the story of Moses. The burning bush, the bush that did not burn. It was on fire, but it didn't burn. And who dwelt there? I am, Yahweh. He was there. And so all of this rich abundance, Exodus chapter three, verse two says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. One commentator put it this way. The poetic phrase, the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, this poetic phrase produces a brilliant, and I would add ironic, step down. He's describing this beautiful country, this fruitful land, fruit growing everywhere, and vegetables, just rich produce of the field. And then he says, by the favor of him who dwells in the bush. The contrast is stunning from a fertile land to a bush. Why does he say it this way? Because the fruitfulness of Joseph is not natural. It is supernatural. It is by the blessing of God who supernaturally appeared in the bush there on the mount. And it is always this way. Fruitfulness in our lives is not natural. You know what's natural in our life? We eat the fruit. We consume it. That's natural. What is supernatural is to produce the fruit, which is why Jesus said in John 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Why do we keep trying? Why do we keep trying to do apart from Jesus? Can't do it. You want to be fruitful? It is only by the one who dwells in the bush. Yahweh, I am that I am, represented in Jesus. Verse 18, 18. So there's Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribe of Joseph. Verse 18, of Zebulun, he said, rejoice Zebulun in your going forth and Issachar in your tents. And so these two now are coupled. These two sons of Leah are often coupled together and their land would also be side by side. They're in, the, in between actually the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea is where these two tribes would be. Zebulun is listed as going out. And that indicates, and if you tie this into Zebulun's blessing back in Genesis 49, it's going out to sea. That of all the people of Israel, the tribe of Zebulun would be the seafaring tribe. And they would go out and take their ships out on the Mediterranean and they would bring in all sorts of riches from there. Issachar in your tents. Well, Issachar was a farming, uh, a farming tribe. They stayed close to home. They stayed in their tents. But the picture here, the blessing is in your going out and in your coming in, either way, you're going to be blessed. I'm going to bless you, Zebulun, out on the sea. I'm going to bless you, Issachar, right here in your lands and in your fields And verse 19 says they will call peoples to the mountain. And there they will offer righteous sacrifices for they will draw out the abundance of the seas. That's Zebulun bringing in the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And the implication they will offer righteous sacrifices. These tribes making their way down to Jerusalem to offer up offerings at the temple. But this is interesting. The hidden treasures of the sand. Verse 19. According to Josephus, the historian, and the Targum of Jonathan and the Jewish Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, were told that Issachar became famed glassmakers out of the sands of Akko. Akko is the city just north of Haifa. And that's right there where Issachar was. And so, using sand to make glass, they became famous for that and well known for it. And so, there's a prophecy here the hidden treasures of the sand. And there's more. There may yet be more hidden treasure in this sand, perhaps beneath it. Gold in my ear, I love this quote. She said, Let me tell you something that we Israelis have against Moses. He took us 40 years through the desert in order to bring us to the one spot in the Middle East that has no oil. And yet, she may be wrong. In fact, it's looking very much that way. You may have read about in recent years the Leviathan gas fields. The Leviathan gas field, 80 miles out from Haifa, directly out from Haifa in the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israeli waters. Looks like it may be the richest gas, natural gas field in the world. And that is owned there. So Zebulun's waters. But Issachar's sand, treasures in the sand. It is thought that perhaps beneath that gas field, in the sands under the Leviathan gas fields, well, the gas fields themselves are projected to have as much as 16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Unbelievable. Talk about riches. Israel would be completely self-sufficient, wouldn't need any of us for anything. And some experts now estimate that beneath that, there are as many as 4 billion barrels of crude oil in these deposits. And so the Israelis are digging furiously And they're looking for these things and they are informed by this as they will be by another blessing here in just a moment. But they're informed by the potential, the possibility that there really are treasures in the sand. Treasures in the sand. Well, continuing on after they will draw out the abundance, the hidden treasures of the sand. uh, Verse 20 says, of Gad, he says, blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arms. So he is so also the crown of the head, and then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved, or the leader's portion was reserved, and he came with the leaders of the people, and he executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. What in the world does that mean? This is a way of describing the tribe of Gad as a warrior tribe, a lion-like fighting tribe. But remember, Gad requested large territory on the east side of the Jordan River so they got their portion before ever going into the land we want this portion we want this ruler's portion this large beautiful portion to the east of the Jordan but they also agreed that for receiving that portion ahead of time they would come fight for their brothers and that's exactly what they would do and Moses is blessing them ahead of time prophetically for keeping their word which they're going to keep He provided the first part for himself, the ruler's portion, and he came with the leaders of the people and executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. He would go into the promised land, fight with his brothers, and then once they are established, head back to his land on the other side of the Jordan. But note this phrase. Gad would keep this promise. Fight for their brothers. And the phrase is, they executed the justice of the Lord. Which reminds us of something, my friends. The land wasn't just promised to Israel. It was removed by God's justice from a deeply sin-sick people. Part of Israel's coming into the land was God keeping the promises. Part of Israel's coming into the land was God keeping his punishment for Canaan. And so Gad was part of the execution of the will of the Lord, the justice of God. Verse 22. Of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. And this one is really weird. If Gad was a full-on lion, a fighting warrior tribe, Dan was a brash cub. Dan was like Suki. She's getting into everything. She is going to be fodder for more stories in the next several years. I, I, I'm just certain of it. If we're not raptured, you're going to hear more about Suki, our puppy. puppy our golden retriever pup. Dan is like a pup. A lion, but not full-grown, not strong, somewhat headstrong, you might think. And that's, this describes Dan. Their story, for one verse of blessing here, their story is intriguing. Can't take you into all of it. But Dan would come into the land and have a beautiful allotment right safely tucked between Ephraim and Judah right up against the Mediterranean Sea. Pretty much the safest place in all of Israel against enemy invasion was Dan's allotment. They didn't like it. They were dissatisfied with it. So they decided to spy out the fertile north. They sent some spies up there, made their way up there. On the way up, they picked up some household gods, some teraphim, uh, some idols, and their own personal priest to go up with them. It's a messy story in the book of Judges and Dan would go up and rather than be content with what they were given, Dan would go up and wipe out a peaceful people, the people of Laish. Wipe them out and take that area and now today when we go to Israel, we visit Tel Dan, which is all the way up in the north. Tel Dan, once Laish was wiped out, became the new allotment of Dan that they fought and won for themselves like a a mighty lion cub killing innocent people, wiping out a peaceful people. They went up there, they settled there, and Jeroboam planted one of his two golden calves in Tel Dan. In fact, we, we can look at today the altar that that golden calf stood on, where they went up to offer pagan sacrifice. Dan was among the first tribes to be taken into Assyrian captivity. Dan fell hard to idolatry before any other tribe of Israel did. The tribe of Dan fell to idolatry. The story is interesting. It says here in the blessing that Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. That doesn't make any sense because if you look at a map, Bashan is Syria today. Dan was never in Syria. Dan's allotment was in the land and Dan went up through the land to get up to Laish in the north. They weren't in Bashan, so how did they leap from Bashan? What, what does that mean? Some Bible commentators say, well, Bashan was known for its lions. Caves and thickets were dense in Bashan, and those lions were known to come out of nowhere and attack cattle. And so maybe that was an allusion to that, a brutally attacking their prey like Dan attacked Laish. But there's a more intriguing possibility here. And that is this, the word Bashan. The word Bashan may be a subtle reference to a Ugaritic word. Now I'm getting a little technical here, but Ugaritic text was basically Amorite language. Okay, so ancient Amorite language that was in play when Israel came into the land. So the Ugaritic language was there, and the Ugaritic word Bashan means serpent or viper. Serpent or viper. Does that sound familiar when you think about the tribe of Dan? See, old Jacob, when he gave Dan his blessing, said, Genesis 49, 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And we believe Jacob was prophesying Dan's idolatry, serpentine idolatry, as it were, devilish idolatry. And drawing it out, again, Dan first to fall to idolatry. Jeroboam setting up his idolatrous calf up there. And it has been theorized. And I want you to hear me really clearly on this. I don't want to be misunderstood. It has been theorized that Antichrist could come out of Dan. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But in the book of Daniel, we read about Antichrist forsaking the God of his fathers, which is a very Jewish phrase. Why would Antichrist forsake the God of his fathers? That sounds like an allusion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so some have theorized, it's just a theory, that perhaps Antichrist will have blood ties to the tribe of Dan. doesn't mean that Dan is satanic. It just means Antichrist is going to be tied to someone. We know he comes out of Eastern Europe, according to Daniel. But we don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And there's going to be something about the Antichrist that causes the people of Israel to go, we can trust this guy. Perhaps he's, he's our man. He's our man of peace. Maybe he's even Messiah. The Bible says Israel will be deceived. I'm not talking about all Jewish people. I'm talking about the nation of Israel. It's going to be deceived by Antichrist. Why? Possibly if he can claim some Jewish connection. And maybe there's something to this serpent in the way, this snake in the path, which would also explain what I've shared before, that in Revelation 7, out of the 144,000, 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, every tribe has 12,000 sealed bondservants except Dan. Dan is not mentioned. Dan is left out from those sealed tribes. What's going on there? It's, it's intriguing. You can think that through. Here's the good news with Dan, and I always like to end with this when we're talking about Dan. What we do know about Dan is Ezekiel 48, verses 1 and 2 says Dan is restored and receives their allotment in the land, in the millennial kingdom. So they're back. And God can even turn a snake on its head and turn it around to be the lion that it was intended to be in the first place. So that's Dan. One verse, whew. Verse 23, of Naphtali, he said, oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea and the south. And indeed, Naphtali would do that very thing. The Sea of Galilee is what's being referred to. The Sea of Galilee and the region that is west of there, this was Naphtali region, and the New Testament calls it Gennesaret. The lake sometimes. The Sea of Galilee. It's also called Lake Kinneret or even Lake Gennesaret. Matthew 14, 34, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. That's Naphtali territory. And when the man of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and they brought to Jesus all who were sick and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. There was a real sense among these people in Gennesaret, Naphtali's region, that Jesus was, in fact, Messiah. So it's interesting that Naphtali is satisfied with favor, satisfied with grace, full of the blessing of the Lord. Verse 24. Of Asher, he said, more blessed than sons is Asher. And may he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. These are all so telling and so descriptive. Asher, is that boot-shaped allotment of land. It looks like a, a boot or a foot. And it runs along the seacoast of Akko down to Haifa today, so up in northern Israel. And this idea that may he dip his toe in oil, this was immediately fulfilled because this tribe, that is Asher, Asher was known to produce the best olive oil in Israel. It was ob- olive oil that was produced by foot, So it wasn't mashed and rolled out in in an olive press. They pressed by foot, and it was the best virgin, extra virgin, extra, extra virgin olive oil (laughs) that you could get in Israel, and this came of the tribe of Asher. However, there's something else possibly prophetic to this, and that is that right there where the toe of Asher is, there at Haifa is a seaport, and at that seaport, there is a pipeline And great ships will bring oil to the pipeline and run that oil right under the toe of Asher and all the way to Iraq. So he will dip his foot in oil. And because of this and because of the earlier uh, comment that we looked at, um, where was it? With uh, Zebulun and Issachar and their hidden treasures in the sand and now Asher dipping his toe in oil, The Israelis are constantly digging, looking for oil where Asher's toe is, where the the base of the land of Asher. They're looking because they think, yeah, there's something here. He's dipping his toe toe in oil. So they're digging and they're fracking like crazy around Asher's toe. Verse 25. Continuing, he says, your locks will be iron and bronze. The word locks there is also bolts. So your gates are going to be secure and solid. And according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. And if you've got the NASB translation, you might want to just line through leisurely walk. And I'm not telling you to take away from the word of God. But the much more accurate translation is the King James translation, which is right there, which says, And as thy days, so shall thy strength be be. I couldn't figure this out, and, and if I ever do, or maybe one of you take this as a challenge, why did they translate it leisurely walk? Because the Hebrew language there is absolutely clear. It is not leisurely walk. The word is dobe, d-o-b-e, dobe, and it literally translates strength in rest. Your strength in rest. This is significant because the phrase is beautiful. As your days so your strength and rest will be. Meaning? Meaning with every day, you're going to have all the strength you need. With every day, you're going to find your strength in your rest. You're going to move through the day, and you're going to have tough days, don't you? Don't we? Have hard days that, man, it just wears us out. But when we are walking with the Lord, there is strength and rest that is provided every day of our lives. And I'll say this to you right now. Whatever your day has been today, your strength and your security are in the Lord and you have his rest. So take your rest in him. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. You will not find strength in getting it all done before you go to bed tonight. You will not find strength in accomplishing every task. And I can tell you personally, I got home at 3 o'clock today. Typically on Wednesdays, I try and get done with everything, get home at about 3, and I take a couple of hours and just rest to come back here for teaching at night and worship or whatever else we're going to do. Well, I got home today. And Monday, I was getting all of our bills. I don't really do bills on the 15th. Well, the 15th is today. So I knew I wouldn't have time to do the bills today, so I worked on the bills all day Monday. Got everything set up, but there were a few things that I couldn't finish, had to do today. So I got home at 3 o'clock, and I got on it. And at about 10 to 5, knowing I wanted to be back here at 5, I am knee-deep in bills and my computer, and I'm working furiously, furiously. I got no rest today. I got into the office this morning and I went straight until 3 o'clock, went home and it's just blah, 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 blah. and then I grabbed my stuff and Cheryl can attest to this. I'm running out the door, grabbing my iPad. Okay, where's my Bible? I got my Bible. Chris, get in the car. Let's go. Come on, we got to go to church and rest. <laughs> and we got here and we had to run through the rehearsal and we started worship. And, know. and I, I just love resting in the Lord. And, and you, you may or may not experience the same thing, but I'll tell you what. I love Wednesday nights about halfway into the teaching of the Word. I feel so much peace. Right now, I just love the Word of God and I love the peace that comes from it. And it's not because I got, I did finish the bills, by the way. I lost some hair on the way, but I finished. But that's not where the peace comes from. It's not from getting the list done, it's from resting in the Lord. It's from spending time with him. It's the fact that tonight, on this dark night in December, you chose to be here to worship, to rest, to be in his word, to experience his presence, to be in fellowship. These are good things. And I think it's why we all show up because we know it's not in completing the tasks. It's in quietness and trust and repentance and rest. That's what's going to save us. Well, verse 26, all of the blessings given, Moses rounds the whole thing out, and this is just a great way to end. There is none like the God of Yeshurun. There's none like the God of the upright. In place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy before you. And he said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine and his heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who's like you? A people saved by the Lord who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty so that your enemies will cringe before you? And you will tread upon or literally tread down their high places. Now, a quick word on treading down their high places, it would would be all the way to King Josiah before Israel finally tread down all the high places of idol worship. Sadly, most of Israel's existence in the land, they would embrace the idolatry of Canaan. They would encompass it. They would bring it in. They would add it to. They didn't reject God. They just, it was just God and the idols. And it was finally King Josiah who said, no more. And all of the high places, the first king of Israel to do away with all of the high places. He literally fulfilled this, treading down the high places of idolatry. But this is just, this is just so awesome to me. The, The way that Moses begins and ends the blessing is with the Lord. Like bookends, the beginning of the blessing starts with the blessing of God, the Lord who came down from Sinai and, shog, and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran. And here at the end, he comes right back to the Lord. There is none like the Elohim of yashurun There's no one like God. Talking about Israel's protection, bringing them through, now setting them securely in the land. All the blessing is Yahweh. You want blessing in your life, you want a blessed life, you're not going to get it anywhere else. He is the giver of all good things. He is the Father of lights through whom all blessing comes. The blessing. And by the way, this phrase, everlasting arms. Leaning on the everlasting arms. You know the old hymn? Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. Beautiful song. It's only spoken one time in the entire Bible, and here it is. The only time we see this phrase, Yiraot Olam, the arms everlasting, speaking of eternal strength and power, and literally the the phrase, uh, Ziraot, means from the forearm all the way to the shoulder. So the everlasting arms from from hand to shoulder, shoulder to forearm, he says, you are the everlasting arms. You're under the everlasting arms of God, the strength, the might, the power of God, his arms outstretched. Now think about this for a moment before we wrap this up. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who do you know who could do something like that? Who has measured off the heavens by the span, Isaiah says? To get a sense of the power of the everlasting arms, think of it this way. If you could travel light speed, 186,000 miles per second, 1,000 years to get from one side of the Milky Way to the other at light speed, and scientists estimate that there are up to 200 billion similar galaxies. It would take us 1,000 years to get across the Milky Way, and we haven't even stepped off our front porch. The size of the universe is mind-boggling. It is overwhelming, and yet God measures the heavens, the universe, by the span, which means from the thumb to the pinky. Let's take a look at the universe. Yeah, it's about that big to God, the entire universe. Listen to me, if the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms, what do you have to worry about tonight? Why do we ever fret? He who measures out the universe by the span, the selfsame arms of Jesus that stretch the full distance of the patabulum, that horizontal crossbeam at Calvary, the everlasting arms. And the distinguishing factor for Israel, what makes this people special. Is what God says there in verse 29, they are a people saved by the Lord. That's where your uniqueness comes from, that's where your specialness comes from, your preciousness. It comes from being a people saved by the Lord. That's us. That's us. He is a shield, He is a sword, His arms are everlasting, and His hands. Back in verse 3 of chapter 33, indeed. He loves the people, and all your holy ones are in your hand. He's got us, folks. He's holding us. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 3 says, They followed in your steps. Everyone who receives your word. Jesus says, Those are my sheep. That's my flock. And then Jesus said, I give eternal life to them, John 10, 28, and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Your holy ones are in your hand. That is the eternal blessing. Amen? Amen. Worship team, you guys can come on back up. Let's pray together. Father, we hear the blessing of Israel and there are all kinds of intricacies and ins and outs to this and it's, it's marvelous to hear Moses voicing this for the people. But Father, oh, Father, that we could be blessed like this. The people, the, the, the Hagias, the saints, your holy ones who listen to your voice and follow. Those who are held in your hands who are like Israel, a people saved by Yahweh under the everlasting arms. Father, I pray peace and comfort for your people here tonight that we would rest in you, that we would be quiet in you, not striving over the many things we have yet to get done before Christmas so we can enjoy ourselves, but Father, resting in the Son who was born in Bethlehem, the one who walked the earth, lived and died resurrected and who is at the right hand of the Father. And yet, yet, Lord Jesus, you tell us that you have us right now. May we find our peace in you. In Jesus' name.